trouble with some of the ideas that we'll be talking uh, about. Simply put, the theological issue is the deity of Christ, and uh, the problem is understanding that concept. There's a great deal of mystery in this idea that, that God became a man, and a man who was actually God. Uh, the greater problem is to work our way through to some kind of practical application of that, uh, of that idea. Another problem is that the people to whom this book was written were well-versed in the Old Testament, and most of us are not. And so we may not really understand what he's uh, talking about. I always think of a story I heard once about an eminent theologian who arrived at the gates of heaven and was greeted by the Apostle Peter, who asked the question that Peter is supposed to ask, what do you say about Jesus? And this theologian said, well, theologically, he's the ground of all being. Eschatologically, he's the ground of the divine hope, and existentially, he's the divine. He's the ground of the divine human encounter. To which Peter said, "Huh?" <laughs> uh, actually, Peter did struggle with uh, some of the things that the Apostle Paul wrote. He he tells us that he did. So you're in good company if you have a hard time this morning in uh, grappling with some of these ideas. They are not easy to understand. Uh, I read something that G.K. Chesterton said a number of, of years ago. He said that there was a time when the world nearly nearly died of broad-mindedness. Uh, it was a time when Christians were invited to place their image of Jesus alongside the other images of that day, Jupiter and, and Attis and Ammon and Osiris and the other gods of that time. Uh, Chesterton put it this way, If Christians had accepted the offer... They and the whole world would have certainly, in a grotesque but exact metaphor, gone to pot. They would have all been boiled down to one lukewarm liquid in the great pot of cosmopolitan corruption in which all other myths and mysteries were already melted. Christians rejected the offer, offer then, and as Chesterton said, that was a turning point in history. But I think the offer is being made again. I thought as I was walking through the mall this last uh, this last Christmas doing some shopping, that Christmas now means whatever you want it to mean, which means that it doesn't mean anything at all. What once was the most controversial of all Christian ideas, this notion of an incarnation, now doesn't mean anything. It's, it's the most uh, widely accepted uh, notion. It's the most non-controversial issue that, uh, that you can discuss with with non-Christians, something's gone wrong with our idea of what the Incarnation really means. But if we go back to the beginning, as the Apostle John put it, uh, we read that God was made flesh and lived with us for a while, is the way the NIV translates that phrase. He came and dwelt with us. C.S. Lewis said that uh, the central... Uh, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the, is the Incarnation. They say that God became a man. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. Remember the concern of the author of Hebrews is to establish that Jesus is greater, he's better than anything or anyone that we, we revere or we revel in. He's, he's greater than the high priest of that day. He's greater than any of the prophets. He's greater than anyone or anything that we can uh, we can imagine. 
And in this chapter, chapter 1, his concern is the relationship of Jesus to angels. And he establishes without any, any question that Jesus is superior to angels. Now, angels may not mean much to us these days, but in that day, angels were very significant. The Jews believed, rightly so, that angels were the mediator of the Old Covenant. The Bible tells us in a number of texts that the law given at Mount Sinai was given through angels to Moses and then to the people of God. So angels became very strategic, important uh, beings. They were never worshipped. You'd never catch a Jew worshipping anything or anyone other than God. They didn't worship angels, but they felt that they were very, very important. And they are. In this age, they're second only to God. But uh, Jesus is greater. That's the argument that the writer uh, wants to make. Now, first he establishes that angels, that, that Jesus is better than angels because he is the Son. Let's begin reading with verse 4. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son? Today I have become your father. Or, again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Angels uh, are collectively described in the Old Testament as sons of God, but they are never called the son of God. His argument here is that Jesus is the unique, only begotten Son of God, and that puts him in a category entirely different than any of the uh, than any of the angels. He is greater than angels because they are sons of God. He is the Son of God. Now, the problem with us, as I said, is that we really don't know the Old Testament very well, and uh, so those verses don't particularly impact us. So we need to go back to the Book of Psalms and look at at least one of the passages that he is referring to here. Would you turn back to Psalm two? Second Psalm. This is the uh, Psalm from which he quotes. Uh, this Psalm is attributed to David. It's quoted uh, in the New Testament as a messianic Psalm. Uh, Peter, in one of his sermons, uh, given to us in Acts 4, quotes the uh, second verse of Psalm 2 and attributes it directly to Jesus. He says that the nations that conspired against him were represented by the nations of Jesus' day and that he is the anointed one, as David describes him, uh, whom Peter describes as your holy servant Jesus. So there's no question that the apostles believed that this psalm was messianic. It referred ultimately to, uh, to our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, historically, the psalm had to do with David and his rule. David, as you know, was the king of the nation of Judah. Judah at that time occupied a large share of, of the Near East. David ruled over all the nations from the Euphrates all the way down to the river of Egypt, which is not the Nile, it's the little river that separates the Sinai from from Egypt, but it's a large uh, area that he was uh, that he ruled. And apparently, there was some revolt within those nations. The uh, the people, he says, were plotting and conspiring. He was getting a lot of static from those that he ruled. Why, he says, do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The word here that's translated anointed one is our word Messiah. The Hebrew word is Mashiach. It's the same. It's transliterated into, into English as Messiah. The Messiah uh, was the anointed one, the king of Israel. It could refer historically to any of the kings of Israel that were anointed by the prophets, but ultimately it refers to the Lord Jesus. And that's the way the apostles quote this, this text in the New Testament. The kings conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Uh, their discontent with him becomes resolved to overthrow his rule. They say, let us break their chains, that is, the chains of, Lord, of the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, and his Messiah, and throw off their fetters. Uh, God laughs at the whole thing. It's a, it, this is an exercise in futility. God says uh, he scoffs at them, he rebukes them in his anger, and he says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. They are playing king of the mountain. They want to, to throw uh, the king off of his mountain. God says, no, I have installed him. He is there permanently. And so the king responds. Now, remember, this is David historically, but it is the Lord Jesus. That's what we must understand about these psalms. They either can be put in the mouth of our Lord or they are said about him. And I am convinced from my own reading of these psalms that all of the psalms are messianic in that sense. Where the psalmist speaks, uh, we can put these words in Jesus' mouth. Even those uh, psalms that refer to the psalmist's sin, because remember our Lord Jesus became sin for us. And when our sin was placed upon him, he felt the guilt and the sin of, of, of of the entire world as though it was his own sin, though he was the sinless one. And uh, when he speaks, he speaks, therefore, with all the guilt that the original psalmist uh, spoke with. Um, the king responds in verse 7. He says, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. This is something the Lord has affirmed. He has said to me, you are my son, my heir. Today I have become your father. Or as most of the translations uh, translate, I have begotten you. By the way, we need to understand that phrase. He is not saying that Jesus had an origin in eternity. He is not begotten in that sense. He is the eternal Son of God. This phrase uh, was a, a kind of swearing-in phrase that was used for kings. And it is applied to Jesus in the New Testament because of his resurrection. Paul quotes this psalm in Romans 13. And he says he was begotten of the Father by his resurrection and ascension and exaltation. In other words, when he was exalted to his position after the, the cross and the resurrection and, the, and, and his ascension, he was seated on the right hand of the Father in that place of authority, and he was then, as this passage puts it, begotten of God. Now that, again, is mystery to us. But uh, that was, as I say, in ancient times, uh, an investiture theme. In other words, the king was invested with authority at that point. So he rules with authority because he's been begotten by God. This text does not mean that Jesus had some origin in the past. Uh, He is eternally the the Son of God. But uh, what is important to us in this passage is the decree of the Lord, uh, the, the psalmist, and then our Lord says... Uh, he has said to me, God has said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. 
Now, actually, the psalmist is quoting from another passage, 2 Samuel 7, which is the passage that the writer of Hebrews quotes from, again, here in Hebrews 1. Uh, David, as you recall, wanted to build God's house. God said, I don't want you to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. He's thinking symbolically of the dynasty that he would build through David. And he says, when you die, I'm going to raise up another son, and he'll build a house for me, and I will be a father to him, and he will be my son, the passage that he quotes here, and he will sit on your throne forever. We say, oh, that's Solomon. No, no. No, no. It's not Solomon. Solomon fulfilled that, uh, that promise to some degree, but, but Solomon didn't live forever. He died in, in 960 B.C. Uh, this is a reference to the eternal Son who is yet to come, the Son of God, our, uh, our Lord Jesus. He's the one who lives forever. Your grandparents die. Uh, your therapist uh, gets too busy to see you. Uh, your friends uh, move out of town, but Jesus remains forever. Now, uh, this is the background of the quotation in Hebrews. Let's go back again to Hebrews and take another look at his argument. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? None. Not one. They are called sons of God. He is the unique, only begotten, eternal son of God. Or again, did... uh, God ever say to any angel, I'll be his father or he'll be my son? No. What does God say to angels? Let all God's angels worship him. Worship him. So Jesus is better than angels because he's the son. Now he, he moves on into another argument and it slips over into it. And if we're not careful, we may miss the, the implications of what he's saying. Jesus is superior to angels because he's the son. Number one. Number two, he's superior to angels because he's God. Now he quotes from two psalms, from Psalm 45 and Psalm 102. Uh, let's begin reading with verse 7. In speaking of the angels, he says he makes his angels winds. They're in control of nature. They are the means by which God controls the universe. He works through angels to accomplish his will. His servants become flames of, of fire. Uh, the last verse in this chapter indicates that angels are also ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. That's, that's us. Uh, so the angels are servants. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. I can't read that passage any other way. That's what it says. About the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. You can't miss the implications of that statement. You may not believe in the deity of Christ, but you cannot avoid the fact that this person who wrote this book believed that Jesus was God. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. In other words, he's an obedient son. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He's made him king because of his character, because he's righteous, because he loves uh, righteousness, he hates wickedness. And God has anointed him, he has made him king, Messiah, and he will have a happy and prosperous rule. That's uh, the the significance of this statement. He's anointed you with the oil of joy uh, forever. 
And he also says, verse 10, in the beginning, O Lord. Now, that's the word uh, which in Greek simply means master, but he's quoting from the Old Testament. And uh, everyone is in agreement, the Jews of this time agreed, that when that word was used, O Lord, to refer to, uh, to God in the Old Testament, it's a reference to the God of Israel, Yahweh, in the beginning, O Lord. You laid the foundation of the earth. This isn't a reference merely to Jesus as one greater than any other human being. One we would say, sir, to, but rather he is God. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. If there's any doubt about his, his nature, he's described here as the creator, God. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. But you are remaining. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment that will be changed. Uh, the created world is like a suit of clothes, which a man outgrows or a woman outgrows and rolls them up and puts them away. But in contrast to creation, you remain the same and your years will never end. So Jesus is superior to angels, not only because he's the Son of God, but because he's God. He is the eternal, only begotten, creator, God. That's why there's no one else like him. Now, uh, again, in order to understand these psalms, let's go back and look at them. The first is Psalm 45. Psalm 45. The psalmist here again is unknown to us. It's uh, the, the title to the psalm indicates that it's a masculine. It simply means a psalm to give us insight, to teach us. It's further described as a love song, wedding song, but it's a, it's a love song that was sung to the king and, and the queen. Most people are agreed that this song was composed on the occasion of some royal wedding and was originally sung for the king and queen at that time, whoever they might be. And the king is uh, extolled in verses 1 through 9 and then the bride in 10 and following. My heart is a store uh, is a stir, uh, <laughs> my heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my work to the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. That's the introductory word of, of the uh, psalmist. Then he addresses himself to the king. You are the most excellent of men. You are the premier man, he says. There's no one like you. He is utterly unique. And your lips have been anointed with grace. I thought when I read that of the description of Jesus, no man ever spoke like this man. It's gracious words that came from his mouth. Since God has blessed you forever. And Paul in Romans 9 quotes that passage, that one line, God blessed forever, and attributes that phrase directly to Jesus. He says, Jesus is God blessed forever. So see here, you have the psalm slipping over into the future. The, the song is being sung to the king, and all of a sudden you find yourself addressing the once and coming king, who, who's not here yet. Uh, these psalms go way beyond anything that can be said of, of the earthly king to whom they were originally addressed. Verse 3, gird your sword upon your side, O mighty one. It's the word for a hero. 
Gird yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously. In behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness, let your right hand display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your your feet. Uh, This is a love song that you can sing to Jesus. I, I, I thought of the little chorus we sing. In moments like these, I sing out a song. I sing out a love song to Jesus. Well, this is one you can sing to him. All of these are his attributes. It's full of majesty and beauty and and splendor and humility and righteousness, power and strength. And then take a look at verse 6. Now, this is the passage that that the writer of Hebrews quotes. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Now, no Jew would ever say anything like that about the human king. If this were Solomon on the throne, they would never think of saying he, he's God. The uh, pagan nations of that day often attributed deity to their, to their kings. But, but that never, never happened in Israel. Not once. Solomon built his temple on top of seven tiers. It's sort of like a step pyramid in his, pardon me, not his temple, his throne. And his throne sat on the, on the tier at the very top, the seventh tier. And as we know from Hebrew numerology, seven always signifies perfection. It's the number for God. So uh, we can assume that the throne signified the throne of God. But Solomon never thought of himself as God, nor did any of the other kings who sat on the throne. Uh, if they ever did, they didn't last very long. Each of the kings recognized that they were simply the vice-regent of God. They sat ruling in his place. They were occupying the throne until the king came who would be God, who would sit on on that throne. And so when uh, this uh, writer, this skilled scribe, addressed his words to the king, he could look straight through Solomon or Rehoboam or Abijah or Asa or Jehoshaphat or Jehoram or whoever happened to be sitting on that throne and see our Lord Jesus. And they would say, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Every one of those human kings died. But uh, God did not let his Holy One see corruption, as another of the psalmist puts it. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of, of your kingdom. See, that was never pressed with a human king. You love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your... Your companions. So here, uh, get this. Here is a God who has a God. So the king is God, but such a, a God has one who has a God. And that was a paradox in Jewish theology until our Lord Jesus came. And all of a sudden with the incarnation, it all fell into place. It made sense. It's still a mystery. We can't understand how God could have a God, but we understand what this psalmist is trying to describe. He, he's addressing his thoughts to God, but he's a God who has a God, who has uh, been placed above all of his companions by, uh, by his God. His companions, I think, are, that's us. That's us guys. Those are the ones that Hebrews is talking about when he is described as the premier son who came into the world so he could bring many sons into glory. So he is unique in his position. He is seated on the throne of God as God, and he is a God who has a God. Now let's look at Psalm 102. Are you still with me? Hanging in there? 
If you can understand all of this, you know more than I do. The title of this psalm is described, is described as the prayer of an afflicted man. We do not know the author. Uh, the psalm is fairly late, we believe. It was written during the exile. Jerusalem lay in ruins. Uh, he's described as afflicted, one who is faint and pours out his lament before the Lord. Both he and his city have experienced the wrath of God. He prays for the rebuilding of the city and the regathering of the people of God around, uh, around the Lord again in Jerusalem. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me when I am in distress. Turn your ear to me when I call. Answer me quickly. For my days vanish like smoke, my burn, my bones burn like glowing uh, embers, and so forth. Verse 10, because of your great wrath, you have taken me up and thrown me aside. My days are like the evening shadow, I wither away like grass. May I remind you again, this is Jesus speaking. If we understand these psalms, then we can put them into the mouth of our Lord as the apostles did. One of one of the, the the major gains I think that we make in seeing the Psalms this way is that we see a side of Jesus that we otherwise would not see. We're able to look right into his heart. We see his feelings. We see the way he was uh, thinking and feeling as as he moved toward the cross. This is why he did not want to have to drink the cup. We can see something of the anguish of his soul. He was beginning to experience the wrath of God. Verse 10, because of your great wrath, you have taken me up and thrown me aside. This is why, as Luke tells us, he began to feel very heavy, is the way the King James translates that phrase. Literally, the phrase means to be away from home. He was beginning to feel lonely because the Father was withdrawing. As he began to pour the wrath that you and I deserved out on the Son. So he feels his weakness, his limitation, he, tells us in verse 9, he eats ashes as his food and he mingles his drink with tears and, and, he, and he senses his own transiency. And, but you, O Lord, verse 12, sit enthroned forever. You will arise and have compassion on Zion for it is time to show favor to her. The appointed time has, has come. And he looks forward to the time in verse 22 when the peoples and the kingdoms of the world will assemble in Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Now, now note verse 23, in the course of my life, he broke my strength, he cut short my days. I don't agree with uh, whoever entitled this psalm. I don't think this is a psalm of an old man. I think this is a psalm of a fairly young man because the, the psalmist recognizes that he's being cut down in his prime. That's what he means when he says, in the course of my life, he cut short my days. This is our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing the cross, realizing that his, his time is very short. So he says, do not take me away, O God, in the midst of my days. And at this point, the Father answers him. Now, that's not apparent from our English text. It's not even apparent from the Hebrew text, but it's very apparent from the Greek translations, which the, the writer of Hebrews was using, that at this point... The psalmist is no longer talking to the father. The father is talking to the psalmist. And, and that's why the, the quotation in Hebrews suddenly makes so much sense. You read through the psalm and it appears as though the psalmist is praying all the way through. You would not get the impression from our English translations that there's a change at this point. But there is. In verse 25, the Lord answers. You, Lord, 
he says to this one who's been crying out in his anguish. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear like uh, wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be discarded, but you remain the same. And your years will never end. The children of your servants will live in your presence. That's us. Their descendants will be established before you. Whom could uh, God address as Lord but the maker of heaven and earth? You see, here again is the God who has a God. So the Father answers the sufferer, who is in reality the Son who created all things. And we say, my, that's hard to understand. You're absolutely right. I don't understand that at all. I just have to take it at face value that this is the Father speaking to the Son because that's the way that the writer of Hebrews, uh, that's the way he uses this quote. Now go back to Hebrews again with that background. And look look at the citation in verse 10. He says in the beginning, well, let's go back to verse 8. About the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. He also says in verse 10, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of, of your hands. But to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This, uh, this is uh, uh, another quote, this time from Psalm 110. The writer of Hebrews will mine that psalm time and time again throughout, throughout the book. That must have been one of his favorite psalms. We'll come back to it again at another point. This is a psalm that Jesus used to befuddle the, the Pharisees. You remember the, the occasion? Uh, he uh, was engaged in debate with them, and, and they thought they had him. He said, well, I, wait, I want to ask you a question. He said, who's... Uh, whose son was Messiah? And they said, David's son. And then he quoted, Jesus quoted Psalm 110. And he said, how could, how could the Messiah be David's son, merely David's son, when David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit uh, at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your, for your feet. Now, in that culture, the father would never call his son master or Lord. be the other way around. Things are backwards here. David is referring to someone who appears to be his son as Lord and master. And, of course, they were caught in that vice. They realized that David was talking about the king who is yet to come, his Lord Jesus, his Messiah. So he's looking down through history. And that's, that's the psalm that the psalmist quotes here. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who, who will inherit salvation? They're servants. Angels are always standing. Even our, the archangel, according to Luke 1, stands before God. They don't get a chance to sit. They're always at work. But the Son, because he is the Son. Uh, you remember the day that James and Peter and John went up on the mountain and they saw our Lord Jesus transfigured before them. He stepped back into eternity. And they saw him with his pre, in his pre-incarnate glory. And uh, Moses and Elijah were there as well. And Peter, with characteristic zeal, wanted to build three places of worship. One for, one for, for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for Jesus. And you remember what the father did? He interrupted Peter right in the middle of his little discourse and how we need to have three worship centers up here. And he said, no, 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 Peter, Peter, no. No, you missed the point. This is my beloved son. This one, 
listen to him. And uh, Luke says they saw no man except Jesus only. Moses and Elijah vanished, and Jesus was left alone. So he's unique. There's no one like him. He's the only begotten Son of God. I, these uh, texts to me are just overwhelming. These are always the passages that I turn to when I want to demonstrate to someone that, that Jesus is God. I don't see how you can deny that the author clearly believed that was so, as did the other apostles. His deity is uh, woven all the way through the fabric of these texts. You really cannot tamper with them without destroying uh, the text. Um, he was the God who became a man. We're, we're going to talk in a couple of weeks about his humanity. The writer of Hebrews does an odd thing. He first argues that Jesus is greater than angels because of his deity, and then he argues that Jesus is greater than angels because of his humanity. So you have two of these placed together. And uh, in order to, to understand Jesus' deity, we have to understand that he also had full humanity. He took upon himself the form of man, the essential uh, shape and form and essence and nature of humanity. He was not only fully God, he was fully man. Uh, Dorothy Sayers uh, put it like this. She said, For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Whatever the game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. I suppose from the very beginning of history, men and women have made mythologies, you know, these uh, strange, tantalizing stories about gods who became human beings. I think that idea is so deeply embedded in us, we can't get away from it. There is this hope and fear that someday God would, uh, he would appear in human form. Uh, sophisticated, highly educated people tried to hush the whole thing up because they were afraid that uh, that's just being too naive. Human beings aren't supposed to think that sort of thing. But people just kept believing it. And as incredible as it may seem to some, one day it actually happened. He came. He was Emmanuel, God with us. The incarnation explains so much about about Jesus. Next week we're going to talk about the uh, application which the writer of Hebrews himself makes. He points out in chapter 2 that uh, we have to pay attention to what Jesus said if he's God. And we also have to pay attention to what his apostles said because they were given their authority to speak by God. Understanding the incarnation helps us to see why Jesus' teaching is so wise and so shrewd and so knowledgeable. He had such penetrating insight into life. He was so understanding about us and what makes us tick. And the only explanation for it is that he always depended upon the Father. What he heard the Father saying, he said. What he was saying is what the Father is saying to us. His words are, are God's words, and therefore we cannot take them lightly. 
It also helps us, the incarnation also helps us to uh, understand these strange statements that Jesus made about himself. Uh, as many people have pointed out, uh, you simply cannot say that Jesus was merely a good teacher. You can't just read through the Gospels and take the Sermon on the Mount and say, that's so wise and wonderful material. And, you know, well, he was an awfully good teacher because he went way too far, way too far. He said things that a merely good teacher would never would never say. As a matter of fact, if he is only a good teacher, then he is not good. He's some kind of megalomaniac uh, because he claimed to pre exist Abraham, you know, just sort of casual way he had of saying before Abraham was, I was, I am. As a matter of fact, he used the name for God. And uh, people really, uh, they knew from the outset how audacious his claims are. That's why they eventually put him to, put him to death. Um, C.S. Lewis posed what he called the trilemma, or a play on dilemma. He said that uh, you really only have three options when you read about Jesus. Uh, either he was a uh, he was uh, an immensely arrogant man, uh, sort of like Father Divine, who claimed to be God, or he was crazy, said on the level of a man who believed he's a, a poached egg, or he's who he claimed to be, God Himself in human form. Um, I read a story once about a doctor who was making his way through an asylum. And I uh, saw a man standing in the corner with his hand in his coat. And he said, who are you? And he said, I'm Napoleon. And he said, how do you know? And he said, God told me. And this man right next to him in the bed next to him rose up and said, I did not. <coughs> and uh, that's sort of the way we think about people who claim to be God. But here's a man who claimed to be God, but yet whose teaching was the sanest, shrewdest, wisest, most sensible teaching the world has, has ever known. And it explains him and explains why we should take his, his words seriously. But uh, as I said last week, the incarnation also explains a great deal about God. If Jesus is God. And if you want to know what God is like, all you have to do is look at Jesus. Read the Gospels. See how he dealt with people. See how he related to the sinful and the broken and and those that were struggling, having a hard time in life. And just the way he went about living, as Jesus himself put it to Philip. If you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. Uh, there was this strange tradition back in olden days that uh, God was very hard to get along with. If, if you mispronounced his name, he would, he would get you. So that's why the Jews did not pronounce Jesus or God's name. We don't even know how to pronounce God's name. It's been lost in antiquity because for hundreds of years it wasn't pronounced because they were afraid they might make a mistake and God would get them. Uh, they were afraid that if they ever touched God or saw God, they would die. They would die. There was that odd story in the book of Judges about Samson's parents. You may remember the story. Manoah was... Uh, the, the angel of the Lord, who is God in, in some kind of pre-incarnate form, appeared to Manoah. And uh, Manoah thought, sure, he's going to die. He said, I've seen God. I'm doomed to die. They thought that if you touched God or you saw God, you were finished. It struck me this last Christmas that when the angels appeared, they said to the shepherds, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because God was about to appear in a form that no one could be afraid of. 
how in the world could you be afraid of that child that was lying in that, that trough? No one would be intimidated by God in the form of, of, a, of a baby. Um, what I think we learn from the Incarnation is that ordinary human beings, just like you and me, can live next to a perfect God. Blaise Pascal said, Jesus is a God whom we can approach without fear and before whom we can humble ourselves without despair. Some of you may remember the story of Fan La Fenelon, this young woman who was taken prisoner during the German occupation of Austria and who was, she was a concert pianist and she was placed in a in an orchestra that played only for Nazi officials. They had their heads shaved. They all wore the same gray clothing. Their identity was taken away from them. And their whole life was reduced to one proposition, make beautiful music or die. And if they ever hit a sour note, they were taken out and shot. They played for the Fuhrer and others. Um, And some people think that about themselves. They look at their own lives, the untuned and untunable nature of of their lives, and uh, they feel that their whole life is reduced to that one proposition, make beautiful music for God or you die. But if you think that about God, you just aren't looking at Jesus. When you see him, you understand what God is really like. He reached out and touched us. Back then, they thought if they touched God, they would die. What we learn from the Gospels is that when you touch Jesus, you're healed. A wonderful little poem. Actually, it's a hymn. Uh, we've made it into a hymn. Ho, everyone that is thirsty in spirit. Ho, everyone that is weary and sad. Come to the fountain. There's fullness in Jesus. All that you're longing for, come and be glad. Let's pray. Father, what can we say in response? We are so grateful. That you came. We see ourselves in these psalms as one of your children, one of your descendants, heirs of the promise because you came. That you would come for us is something that we cannot fathom. And yet it's true. The Bible tells us so. We've read these passages that tell us that the eternal creator God was willing to set aside the use of his deity. He took on full humanity. He lived among us. He touched us. Men and women touched him. They handled him. They held him. They held in their arms the eternal God, the everlasting Son, the unique, only begotten one of the Father. It's almost too good to be true. It's too good not to be true. We want to believe it. We thank you for coming. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.